Well, in light of that, <laughs> Happy New Year. Uh, it's, it's sort of a terrible passage. <laughs> I guess you're not supposed to say that about any part of the Bible, but it is. It's a terrible passage. Uh, you know, uh, I had someone during Christmas season come up and say, man, I'm really enjoying this Christmas series, but I can't wait to get back to Mark. You know, I've love, been loving this Mark series, and I, I knew what was coming, and I, I didn't have the heart to say, oh, just wait for January 8th, you know, get back into Mark, and, you know, had, uh, John the Baptist's head on a platter. Um, this passage kind of reminds me of the very first sermon I ever preached. It was back in seminary. I went to Dallas Seminary. And, you know, Dallas, if you know anything about uh, Dallas Seminary, they specialize in training preachers to preach expositionally, which is the way we teach here. So you literally explain the text, you know, point by point, paragraph by paragraph. That's why we, you know, start in Mark 1.1 and we're going to end at the very end of Mark. We're not going to skip over anything at all. And one of the benefits of that is you get to preach passages like this. And I remember my very first sermon, it was a proverb. And and each of us in the class was handed a little card. And it had a proverb on there. And we were all eager to know what proverb we were going to have the opportunity to preach as our very first sermon and uh, preaching 101. Literally, what you know, preaching 101 is what it's called. And so I I flipped open, and mine was Proverbs 25, 16, you know, and I was so eager, and I looked at it. And and this is what Proverbs 25, 16 says. I I, I know, I don't have to actually read it. It says, if you find honey, eat just enough. Too much, and you'll vomit. (laughs) And I literally went up to the prophet, and I said, listen, I, I think I got the wrong card. Like, I think there's a typo. Did you mean Proverbs 26, 17, or whatever it was? And he, and he just smiled. He said, oh, you must have got the vomit passage. <laughs> now, here's the thing about that sermon. And honestly, it's been true in every sermon I've ever preached where I started off thinking, what in the world does this have to do with me? It always ends up hitting me right here. Now, this is true today. I think there's something in this sermon. In fact, I think there's a couple of things that the Spirit of God, as He speaks to us through this text this morning, would say, this is for you. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, let's see what He can pull out of His hat. You know, this is not me. It's not some magic trick. It's the Word of God, sharper than a double-edged sword. It's living and it's active. And so this morning, this is the text that God has intended for us, January 8th. 2017. Now, how I'm going to approach it is by focusing on the two main characters in this story. Now, this is the only story, the only passage in the entire Gospel of Mark that does not center on Jesus. Like, he's not even essentially mentioned in the entire passage. The only one. Isn't that interesting? So, you know, what we've uh, very creatively titled the sermon this morning, Herod and John. These are the two central characters. So I, I want to look at both of them. And we're going to pull some applications, something we can learn from each of their lives. And I'm going to start by contrasting these two men because they could not be more different. They're night and day. So just listen to some of these contrasts about Herod and John. John was the son of a priest set apart for religious work. Herod was the son of a tyrant set apart for continuing his father's maniacal rule. John was known for devotion to God and radical purity to the law. Herod was known for devotion to himself and radical immorality. 
John wore camel's hair and ate locusts and wild honey. Herod wore expensive robes and ate the richest food in the region. John baptized people who repented of their sins. Herod executed people who convicted him of his sins. Could go on and on, you get the point. If there's any spectrum that you could name, any category, you'd have John on one pole of the spectrum, one end of the spectrum, Herod on the other pole of the spectrum. There's no middle ground. I mean, these are both radical men, and they're radical in very, very different ways. They're both going to offer us this morning through this text. From Herod, we're going to get a warning. We're going to get a warning. Maybe no surprise as you think about him and how this passage, but there's a warning for us in this text. From John, we're going to hear an opportunity, a warning, an opportunity. That's a little bit of a a preview of where we're going. So let's focus first on Herod and listen to the warning. Now, I'll give you a brief recap of where we've been in this series on Mark. I know it's been a while. At this point in the text of Mark, it's been maybe 18 months, maybe going on two years since Jesus has been doing ministry with his disciples. And what was Jesus' message? The same message over and over. We found it all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Here is Jesus' core message. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's arriving, it's available, it's at hand, the kingdom of God. So, therefore, repent and believe in the gospel. Turn around, change, repent, and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that's the core message of Jesus. And so through his teaching, through his miracles, the disciples are hearing this message over and over and over again. Now, the immediate context of our text today in chapter six is Jesus has just sent those disciples out to now begin proclaiming the message themselves. So, you know, they're kind of like apprentices, right? That's why they're called disciples. So they've heard Jesus preach it. They've seen him do the miracles that sort of embody the message. Now they are going about and doing the same. In fact, let me just catch us up. The last two verses of the last passage that we taught on, which was Thanksgiving weekend, Mark 6, 12 through 13. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Mark 6. So starting in verse 12, they went out, meaning the disciples, and preached that men should repent. Well, good, that's the core message of Jesus, right? Verse 13, they were casting out many demons and were anointing many or anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So they're, they're following in the footsteps literally of their master, Jesus. Now we get to verse 14, which is our text that Kevin already read. I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but I'll take it in pieces. So let me go back and start talking about King Herod. He's introduced in verse 14. King Herod heard of it. So he heard of this ministry of Jesus. For his name, meaning Jesus' name, had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he's Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Very interesting dynamic going on. Now, the rest of our text, 17 through 29, is sort of like a a backstory on how it came about that Herod killed John. And, you know, as you already heard, it's a terrible story. It's ugly. It has all the elements of today what would be a front page, you know, National Enquirer scandal. It's got palace intrigue. It's got this grandiose 
you know, drunken feast party. It's got sensuality, violent murder of a famous spiritual figure. It, it, in my mind, it's just like kind of like what, what, what you not want to look at in the grocery store, but you can't take your eyes away from it, right? It's like a Kardashian train wreck is happening here. And it would have been big news of the day. Now, we got to pause here for some background on Herod. This is not the Herod that you might be thinking of. So a few weeks back when we talked about the story of the Magi, and JJ referenced that uh, account uh, again this morning, the Herod that met with the Magi and tried to trick them, you know, and, and, then, and then ultimately killed all the babies trying to get to Jesus, killed all the babies in Bethlehem, that was this Herod's father. That Herod was called Herod the Great, and he really was great. Like, he ruled over the whole territory for a long period of time. He, I mean, he did incredible building projects. I mean, he was a very significant man in history. Now, when he died, he changed his will a bunch of times right before his death. In fact, he even killed off some of his sons. So they wouldn't get, you know, they wouldn't inherit his kingdom because he thought he was paranoid. But in the end, he decided to divide up the kingdom so that none of his sons would be as great as him. And Antipas, which was one of his sons, got the Galilee region. Now, where was Jesus doing his ministry? Galilee. So Antipas is the king, and technically he wasn't a king, but that was just a common term used for, for, for the Herods. He was a tetrarch, so he was a ruler of a fourth. But Antipas was the Herod that's mentioned in here. Now, by the way, Antipas is the same Herod that'll come into play at the end of Jesus' life. He'll go before Herod. Why does Pilate send him before Herod? Well, he knows that Jesus is a Galilean. So he needs to go to Herod Antipas. So that's the Herod that we're talking about. Now, Antipas, like all the Herods, was an Edomite. Now, that means he was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob. This was a problem for them because to be a true a king of Israel, true Jewish king, you needed to be from the correct royal line that goes, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not Esau, down through David, etc., etc., etc. And they did not fit the bill. But what Antipas did was he converted to Judaism to try to present himself as a true king for the Jews. There's just one problem. His lifestyle did not match his religion. And all the Jews knew it. And the biggest place where his immorality was on display was this marriage to Herodias, his current wife. Now, this was his second wife. He had divorced his first wife in order to marry Herodias. Now, that in and of itself was against Jewish law. But not only that, Herodias had been, this is where it gets really crazy, had been the wife of Antipas' half-brother Philip. And he'd essentially stolen her from his half-brother. Not only that, but Herodias was also his niece. Now, this gets really tangled. And this is a big mess. But the king can do what the king wants to do because he's the king. There's just one person that has the courage to speak out against the immoral marriage that Antipas has now entered into. The prophet John. And of course, like all prophets, John ends up in prison and ultimately killed. Right? This is what happens with prophets who dare to tell the truth to powerful people. And so this is the background of Herod and what's going on with his wife. Now, 
we're going to get an incredible insight into a power struggle between Herod, Antipas, and his wife, Herodias. You see, not all was well in the love shack, so to speak. There was some tension, and the tension centered around John. And we're going to learn about that in verses 19 and 20. So let's take another look at that. Herodias, now again, keep it straight. This is the wife. Herodias had a grudge against him. John had a grudge John Baptist and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so. Now, why could she not do so? Well, because, verse 20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. He kept him safe from his wife, you see. There was arguments going on. There was a power struggle. Herodias said, kill that guy. He's preaching against our marriage. Herod says, not so fast. Now, listen to this. When he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. What? What? He used to enjoy listening to him. Now, enjoy in Greek means enjoy. It means he was glad-hearted when he heard John speak. It, it, it somehow made him uh, uh, happy to hear this preaching. Now, this is fascinating. This doesn't make sense. We know that John's message was a direct condemnation of Herod. Like, it's clear in the text. We know that Herod was in the wrong. Why did he enjoy hearing himself condemned through the preaching of John? This is something very interesting. You know, you, you puzzle over this. Uh, there was obviously something in John's message. Even if Herod didn't like it, there was something there that he needed. Something there that a part of him wanted to hear, even though it went against what he knew was right. Now, this seems strange to us, but it's not so strange when you think about it. Like we, we all have areas of our lives that we want to own ourselves and control and, and not submit to God's will. And every now and then we hear the word of God preached or maybe on a sermon on a podcast or, or, or maybe a lyric of a song or maybe it's your own Bible reading and it just sort of pushes against some area of your life that you don't want to let go of. You kind of have this love-hate relationship with that moment, don't you? It's just like, oh, that's just truth and I, I need to do that. But I don't want to give it up. And this is why it says that Herod was perplexed. Fascinating little phrase here. When he heard him, he was very perplexed. I want to come back to that word in a minute. But before I do that, I want to give you an illustration. I couldn't help study this passage. I couldn't help but think about one of the most memorable characters in one of my favorite novels, which is Crime and Punishment. I don't know how many of you have read that novel. It, you know, at, at first, you know, it sounds a little bit intimidating, right? It's a Russian novel translated to English. It's fascinating. It's wonderful. And you meet this character, the main character, Raskolnikov, which is like, he's tempted to murder this woman. And while he's, he's contemplating, like he's pulled, he wants to murder her, but then he doesn't want to murder her. It's this very strange thing. He meets this man in a bar named Marmeladov. Marmeladov is, to me, the most tragic character in the novel. Because Marmeladov is a drunkard. And he's not just a drunkard, he's addicted to alcohol. He keeps going over and over again and spending all his poor family's money 
so that the family is so poor that his daughter actually seeks out an irrepute, a vocation of irrepute in order to provide for the family because her dad is drunk spending their money in a bar. And every time he goes into the tavern, he drinks their last penny and he feels incredibly guilty, but he can't change. And so this man, this tragic figure, goes home to his wife. His wife verbally berates him, pulls on his hair, yakes on his hair, but instead of fighting against it, he welcomes that treatment. In fact, this is what he, this is what he says. He says, blows I am not afraid of from her. Such blows are not a pain to me, but even an enjoyment. That sound familiar? In fact, he goes on, I can't get on without it. It is better so. Let her strike me. Now, what's going on here? He knows he's wrong. He knows he's guilty. And the only way his conscience can be calmed or assuaged is to receive this abuse from his wife because she's judging him righteously. But he couldn't stop Ruining his family. Tragic. Now, we don't know all of Herod's motivations, but this sounds a little bit like what's going on here. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this half of verse 20, his, or uh, paraphrases it, I should say. Uh, and by the way, Eugene Peterson wrote The Message. If you're not familiar with that, it's a very interesting and helpful paraphrase of the Bible. Here's how he paraphrased this. Whenever... Herod listened to John. He was miserable with guilt, and yet he couldn't stay away. Something in John kept pulling him back. That's actually a great translation. Here's why. That word perplexed. All right, remember I mentioned it a minute ago. When he heard him, he was very perplexed. You dig into that word in Greek, and what you find is the root of it, the, the, the root of the word perplexed, means that a, a way forward or a passageway or, or a road or a crossing over, o, over a, a, um, a river or something like that. But you, you add a prefix to it that means not or without. So it means without a way forward, without a bridge across the river, without a way out. It's the idea of being stuck. Or maybe more accurately, it's the idea that you know the way that you should go, but you can't seem to get there. This is Marmeladov. This is Herod. To some degree, this is us. We hear the word of God preached. It strikes us to the heart. It's a double-edged sword, right? We're perplexed. We know what we should do, but we can't do it sometimes. Now, this is the, the, the humanness that's happening with Herod. You see, you read these stories sometimes, and you just read through them, and you're just like, what does this have to do with me? Do you see a little bit of yourself in this man, Herod? He, he was being convicted of God through the preaching of John, but he doesn't change. Now, this is starting to get a little bit into the warning for us. Here's, what's, here, here's where it gets interesting to me. Every time John preached, Herod had an opportunity to repent. There was a window of opportunity that was open to Herod. But the sobering fact is the window did not stay open forever. And so we get to verse 21 and we read this. 
a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Now, it's an interesting phrase, a strategic day. A strategic day for whom? Not Herod. His wife. She'd been waiting for the time that she could box her husband in a corner and get him to finally dispose of this nuisance, John the Baptist. And she's going to win the power struggle with her husband in this strategic day. Now, here's the irony of this. Her window of opportunity opens to kill John. At that very moment, Herod's window of opportunity to change his life and repent shuts permanently. Now, John's preaching made Herod feel like he was at a crossroads. It perplexed him. But that feeling, that guilt, that pull, that tug, that feeling of being stuck, wanting to go a different way but not knowing how to get it, it was a gift to him. And now he's going to put it to death. Now, Herodias knew her husband's weaknesses. So she boxes him into a situation where she gets her way. Now, here's how this works. She knows that her husband has some strange affection for John, but she knows a few things he loves even more. Wine, women, most importantly, not losing face in front of the crowd. So she has her daughter. Now, this was a daughter by the first marriage. So this was probably a teenager, maybe early 20s. She has her daughter dance in front of Herod when he's likely at his most drunk. And all his dinner guests, and and, and this girl is showing off. It's no doubt some kind of provocative dance. And of course, Herod, you know, in his drunken stupor, makes this terrible, foolish, boastful promise. We'll pick it up in verse 23. He swore to her, this, this dancing girl, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you. Up to half my kingdom. What what an idiotic thing to say. Now, the girl goes off, verse 24. She gets some coaching from her mom, who obviously had set up this whole thing. And then she comes back, verse 25. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, terrible. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head and he went and had him beheaded in the prison. Just like that, Herod's opportunity, his open window, shuts closed. Now, a year or two later, Herod meets Jesus face to face at Jesus' trial. And you think, maybe, just maybe, there's another window of opportunity for Herod to hear truth. Here's the problem. From everything we can tell, between the time John died and when Herod actually meets Jesus, his conscience had become so dulled, it had become so seared, that he's not interested in hearing anything spiritual at all from Jesus. He asked Jesus no questions about spiritual things, no questions about the law, no questions about truth. What does he ask him? Do some magic. I want to see a show. 
And so Jesus does not indulge him. In fact, we know Jesus doesn't even open his mouth. Why does Jesus not open his mouth? Because John had already preached to Herod again and again and again. And Herod did not change. Herod did not repent and believe. And the window of opportunity for Herod was shut. He's a tragic figure. Now here's the warning for us from Herod's life. It is far too easy for us to be just a little bit like him. Now what do I mean by that? It's far too easy for us to hear God's word spoken to us, preached to us, in a lyric of a song, reading in your own Bible study. I mean, we live in a part of the country where we have enormous exposure to God's word. It's all around us, right? You all are regular church attenders. You hear the preaching every single Sunday. Many of you read the word throughout the week or listen to other podcasts or other kinds of things. It's far too easy for us to listen to God's word, but listen in such a way that never changes us. And the thing about it is we even enjoy listening. We all have our favorite preachers. We've got our favorite podcasts. You know, we've all got our favorite passages. We've all got our, our favorite verse on the coffee cup, right? Does it change us? Or does it just bounce off our hardened hearts and sort of this exterior that just says, I just, I have some goals for my life and they're not terrible goals like Herod, but I'm not really open to God's word penetrating certain parts of my heart. This is the warning of Herod's life. Now, here's what I want to say. Anytime you feel an opening, a softening of your heart to the word of God or something that, that's preached or you hear or you read from the scripture and it creates in you this, this perplexed feeling. This, I, I think this is what God wants me to do, but I'm not sure that I want to do it. You need to act. You need to do it. You need to pray that God will give you the power to move forward because you don't know how long that softening of your heart, that window of opportunity will be available. Uh, Tim Keller once said something along these lines that really stuck with me, both because I think it's remarkably true, but it's also remarkably frightening. I was going to summarize it, and I said, I can't say it better than him, so I'm just going to read it to you. He wrote, you do not have the power and the control over your heart that you think you have. If at any time in your life, even right now, you're feeling open to do something and you know that you should do it, but you're afraid to do it, you really ought to get to it. Don't you dare think that the window of opportunity is going to be open forever. It is not. You don't have that kind of control over the tenderness and openness of your heart. Ten days from now, ten months from now, certainly ten years from now, you're going to be incapable of doing the thing that right now you know you ought to do. You will not become the person who is capable of it. You'll become a person who is incapable of it unless you act now. This is the warning to us from Herod's life. When the word of God comes to you and speaks to you and opens your heart or, you know, the, the, God's spirit is at work and you're convicting you of something. You need to move into that. You, you can't let it alone. You can't just sort of turn back on the Netflix and, and just make it go away. You need to engage it. Now, how would you do that? That's where we're going to go next. But before I do, let me just encourage you. Talk to a friend. Come 
get with one of us, one of your pastors or an elder here at the church. You, you don't have to have it all figured out. Just say, listen, I'm perplexed. I, I want to move forward in something. I don't know how. I think God's calling me to do something, but I don't know how. For a lot of you, maybe, maybe many of you in this room, right now, like literally as I'm speaking, there's a little bitty openness in your heart. Something is softened. Something is tender. Maybe it's for the first time in your life. Maybe it's for the hundredth time in your life. Don't turn away from it. Don't put it off. For many of us, it might be the conviction that something in our life should change. That, that we're being held back from the joy that we could experience in Christ and the impact that we could have as witnesses of Christ because of something in our life that's holding us back and we're feeling perplexed by this. We're feeling stuck by this. Let me just give you some categories. And we can all identify with at least one or more of these categories. For some of us, we need to stop doing something destructive. For others of us, we need to forgive someone. Others, we need to change an attitude or a habit. Others, we need to repent of some selfishness. Or, or we need to stop trying to live so independently from God. Some of us need to commit to a community of faith and stop trying to do the Christian life on our own like Lone Rangers. Uh, some of us need to say yes to something that we just sense God's calling us to. Maybe it's small, maybe it's big, some change in your life. If your heart is moved and open in any way right now, act. Don't think the window of opportunity will be open forever. It will not. Now, how do you do this? How do you get yourself unstuck? How do you find the way forward and get away from the feeling that there's no way forward? Get away from the feeling that, oh, I know he's right. God, I know I should be doing this or stop doing this or the other, but I can't. This is where we're going to learn something from John's life. John presents an opportunity for us, but it may be different than what you think. Let me explain. Now, by any typical standard, John's life seems like it ends miserably, right? It ends tragically, and in some degree that's true. But I want to say his life actually ends triumphantly. And I don't mean that just because, you know, it's a sermon. I'm trying to make you feel good at the end of a terrible passage. That's not where I'm going with this. It does end triumphantly. Why? Because he fulfills his purpose. What was John's purpose? John's purpose was to be the forerunner of Jesus, right? To prepare the way so people would, would be able to follow on a clear path. He's the forerunner of Jesus. Do you see that he was the forerunner of Jesus even in his death? Like, does this sound familiar to anyone else besides John? Listen to this. He was feared by people in power, so he was arrested, falsely accused, the subject of a vicious plot, unjustly executed, grotesquely put on display, and then buried by his followers. You see how John was a forerunner of Christ, even in his own death? This is a triumphant death because he lives out his purpose that he'd been called to. In fact, there is a final word about John the Baptist given in Luke 7, 28. This is what Jesus says about John. This is an amazing statement I'm about to read to you. Jesus says to his disciples, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Wow. Not Abraham? Not David? Not Joseph, you know, no one greater than John. Now, here's where this sermon might go in a different direction than you think. 
right? I told you this is about two men. I told you we're going to contrast these different paths. I warned you, don't be like Herod. Now you're expecting me to say, don't be like Herod, be like John. That's not what this passage is about because it's not what John's life was about. Listen, there's a big problem with trying to be like John. Number one, John was a very specific, particular man given a very specific, particular task in the context of redemptive history. But number two, even beyond that, even if you could be like John, none of us would. You wouldn't do it. Think about this. If you could script how your life goes, not anyone in this room would put any much of anything in it that even remotely resembles John's life. He dressed like a caveman. He ate bugs. He died in a dungeon. None of us is choosing those things. Right? I don't see camel's hair in the room. But that's okay. Because John's life wasn't about imitating John. What was John's life about? Pointing to Christ. Pointing to Christ. In fact, there's this beautiful verse before John dies. He's talking to his disciples. You know what he says? He says, He, Jesus, must increase. I, John, must decrease. It was always all about Jesus for John. And so if he were here today in all of his camel skin glory, he would say, don't try to be like me. Put your trust in the one to whom I point. This is the secret of getting unstuck, y'all. This is the secret of not being like Herod, stuck in the way that you know you should go, but not being able to choose it. You look to the one that did the work. You put your hope, you put your trust you put your faith in the one that made the right choices. The one who was never stuck because he was always righteous. The one that lived that life that you couldn't deserve and he died the death that was your death. And then he says, because of me and my work, you are now righteous on my account. This is what it looks like to move forward as a Christian. You can't take all your will and say, I'm not going to be like Herod. I'm going to be like John. Or even better, maybe I'll try to be like Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? All those kinds of things. Look, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Here's how it works. I'm looking through faith to the righteousness of Christ on my behalf. And I receive that as a gift so that in response of gratitude, I can make decisions that my selfish heart would never make without Jesus. I can go down a path, no matter how much it seems to be against my own selfish, lustful, personal desires. I can make a different choice. Not because I'm stronger than that. Not because I'm like John the Baptist. But because I have the Holy Spirit in me and my righteousness is in Christ, not in my behavior. Now, this is exactly what Jesus himself said in the second half of the verse about John that I read to you earlier. Going back to Luke 7.28, I didn't read you the whole verse. Now, some of you in this room, knew, you knew that because you, you know this verse. I say to you, Jesus said, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John yet. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Y'all, how do you get in the kingdom of God? Faith in Christ, not good works. 
So here's what this is saying. Like there are people in this room that just feel so convicted right now because you're like, I've got habits in my life. I've got things in my life that are so wrong. Like now I haven't put anybody's head on a platter, but I'm basically just as bad as Herod and I can't move forward. I am stuck. Here's what this is saying is, all you do is call out to your Savior. Say, I can't do it. I need you. And you're greater than John. In God's economy, the kingdom economy, you, oh, unrighteous, stubborn, prideful, selfish man or woman, you're greater than John because you have the righteousness of Christ on you. This is the good news of the kingdom. Repent and believe. Change, turn, and believe. That's how you get unstuck. Most of you in this room have believed at some point in time, but you must never stop coming back to the gospel. This is why we preach it week in, week out, not just for the unsaved, but honestly, just as much, maybe more so for the saved those of us who grab on to the gospel and then we try to go about the Christian life through our own work. <laughs> we say, I trust in Jesus for my eternal salvation, but I'm going to try really hard through my works to be like John or Jesus or whoever it is you put on that pedestal. You know, maybe someone, your wife, your brother, whoever it is, a pastor. I'm not saying don't pursue righteous things. I'm not saying that God won't convict your heart and you need to move through an open window. I'm saying the only way you move through that open window is through faith in Christ, acknowledging that you cannot on your own, but that he can and he will through you because you've been redeemed. That's the way out. And I want to pray for us that many in this room in 2017 would walk that path Let's bow your heads. Our Father, I thank you for your word because it cuts us to the core. And and even 2,000 years ago, it cut this man Herod to the core. But he did not believe. And so I pray, Father, that we would believe. And I pray, Father, for many in this room that feel perplexed. They feel stuck. They, they know a way that they should go or they just seem that they can't get going in that direction. They can't put it together. They can't get on the right path. They can't be right. They can't do right. They can't fix their life. God, I pray that you just help them to just sit in your grace. That they would be willing just to say, I may not be able to be the kind of righteous person that seems to me God would want to choose, but I in faith are going to believe that this invitation is for me. And I will say yes to it, not knowing what it may hold from the rest of my life, but knowing that it's the only way, it's the path forward. And I pray, Father, that you give many in this room faith those that have never put their faith in your son before, God, would you give them faith even right now as I'm speaking to them? Those who have believed, would you give them faith to walk through whatever open window you have prepared them for in this moment through the tenderness and openness of their heart? 
And I pray that they would not try to do it without you, that they would be fully dependent, that they would rest, that they would receive the joy of their salvation as they learn little by little to obey. And I pray all of this in the great name of Jesus because it's through him that we can ask. Amen. Amen. Two things before I dismiss you. Um, we've started a rhythm here. If you haven't been around in the last couple of months, after the service or in between services, if you ever want to come up, pray at these kneelers, if you want to pray with someone, we have a couple after every service that's over here to my right, your left. You don't have to share all everything with them. You just say, I need prayer. They'd love to pray with you. So I'd invite some of you to take advantage of that this morning. And then finally, I, I want to send you out with a benediction. So if you would stand. When you walk through those doors, you're entering into a world that cares much more for the values of Herod and for the values of Christ. Yet as JJ reminded us last week, we're called to be salt and light in that. I will be praying for us this week that we could walk out into that world with confidence. That we would walk out knowing we have been redeemed through Christ, not of our own works, but through the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we may point to him like John and not miss these windows of opportunities to change like Herod. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that I Pray this on our behalf. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.